0: Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined, as always, on Close Reads by the inimitable and incomparable Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Um, those adjectives <laughs> both apply to both of them.
1: Um, oh. oh, that feels good. I just didn't want to put.
0: So I just good. didn't want to say them twice. It seems unnecessary.
2: <laughs> that was a lot of eyes. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's Tim and Angelina, how is it going?
2: It's going great. Yeah, you know, we got that conference coming up next week, so I sure hope that uh, I get to meet some close readers in Orlando.
0: Yep, there is a little bit of space left in that, so if you want to come,
1: please do so. Um, so let me just get this straight. You guys are going to be in sunny coastal Florida hosting a conference on classics, literature, uh, the life of the soul the life of the mind and i don't get to go i won
2: you can come tim he said you can still there's still seats available
1: oh. <laughs> Tim. i am so happy for all of you
0: tim if you if you can find a way to get there i will let you in for free um but <laughs>
2: this reads discount
0: i well, easy now. I didn't say that the close reads discount was free. I said Tim's discount was free. Uh, I won't be there, actually, Tim. Alas, David.
2: I know. I got this horrible news this morning. I don't know that I can cope.
0: Yeah.
1: It's not going to work, David.
2: That's what, That's what I think. The no whole way the
1: conference is going to work without I, you.
0: I appreciate, um, I appreciate that you are pinning the success of Pastor C events entirely on me and my, my uh, being there. But I think we'll be okay. Uh, Who
2: is going to handle my mid-conference meltdown? This is the real question.
0: <laughs> well, we're gonna, we're experimenting with something. We're wondering what happens if we just let Angelina cry in her crib. <laughs> if, if we just let her cry, will she grow out? Will, not will she grow out of it. see she...
2: tough love right here, y'all. Yeah. That's child abuse, David. It's an
0: experiment. Well, I mean, it just depends on how long you let it go on.
2: You uh, show up to my talk with like, red eyes and a puffy face. <laughs> Sniffling my way through some kind
0: of talk. Oh no, we're putting you early on, just, just, you know, just because, just because of that very reason. No, <laughs> I, I, um, it was the only weekend that we could find for us to move. And as I said before, we got on, we closed on a house today, so we have to move. So we're closed. So we're going to move next Saturday. So therefore, I'm not going to go, and Graham isn't going to be going because he has just moved, but also because Ashley is. Do in you know a few weeks after that? So that seems a little risky. So she's not wow. going to be, she's not going to be, or he's not going to be going to the conference either. So no, Graham. I feel no like data. there's a
2: lot of domestic concerns derailing my life right now.
0: Well, isn't that like by definition, right? Such as life. Such is life. Well, we are here as always to talk about great books. Uh, we are going to discuss uh, C.S. Lewis's *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* because it won the Great Books bracket this year it was all in children's literature and it came out the the winner uh, by virtue of listening listener votes and uh, we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about why that book uh, has maintained its popularity why it is so popular what makes why why it would have won something like that we're going to spend an episode on that and then of course we're going to jump into our next book we're going to talk about Evelyn Waugh's *Brideshead Revisited* starting next week, and remember, we're going to go through Chapter Three, so be reading, be reading that um, in in preparation for the first episode of *Brideshead*. Uh, before we get going any further, though, I should say thank you to Rowan Roads Media, who, as you know, has been sponsoring in April and May and making the show pop, uh, possible. I was uh, almost going to say popular. And they've definitely been helping that as well because they've been helping promote it. Uh, but uh, they are publishers of classical Christian curriculum designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co-ops. And they're back with a giveaway for Sissy S-Sissy Podcast listeners. I still can't talk. But doing this, That's, this is the 52nd episode. I still can't talk. Uh, each episode, they're going to be giving away one of the 16 units from Wes Callahan's Old Western Culture series. And if you know Wes, you know that you know his... His storytelling is one of the great parts of his teaching. Um, this is a high school video course that guides you through the great books of Western Civ. They've got workbooks, discussion questions, readers, uh, all including West Callahan, uh, Wes Callahan teaching from history and literature and theology and politics and philosophy and all that combined together. Um, so here's how to enter the giveaway that Roman Rhodes is doing. They are going to be giving away one of those units just to people who leave a comment on the Facebook post promoting this episode on the Cersei Facebook page. So head over to facebook.com slash Cersei Institute. Check out the post where we link to this episode of the Cersei Podcast Network. Comment on which unit you would want to win and then a couple days after that, they're going to choose one winner of all the people who post there you know the deal if you've been listening uh, you've probably already skipped ahead you probably already hit that 30 seconds ahead thing uh, but if you haven't then uh, you can browse those titles over at romanroadsmedia.com and uh, maybe we should sit here for like 15 seconds just in silence so that the people who pu- who's pushed fast forward will hear us still talk about how great roman roads media is <laughs> Uh, but because Roman Rhodes really is great, Daniel and David Fukushan and their whole crew are great guys. They're going to be in Orlando. They're helping sponsor the Orlando event, um, and they're actually oh, going to be. Oh, I'm just
2: going to straight up beg them for some videos.
0: <laughs> there you go. That's a great idea. Uh, but they're they're great guys. They're doing some really good work. They're um, you know together with Wes, they're they're putting together some great programs, and we are really honored to be partnering with them. Uh, you know. For this, uh, for the event next week, for this podcast, and on into the future. They've become really good friends with us. And whenever we see them at events, we go out and grab dinner and things like that. So um, please support them. Please check them out at least. Uh, com is where you can learn more. All right. So before we dive right into C.S. Lewis, I do want to bring up a question that I thought was really great and is the kind of question that is, uh, you know, the kind of question that the three of us are always thinking about, I think, in our reading lives, whether it's with students or just in discussion with friends, or just you know, in our own, in our own literature, uh, literature imaginative, imaginative worlds, our own—I don't know what that would be—our own secret literary worlds that we have inside our heads. And and the person, um, the person says, this is from Mary, and she posted it on the Close Reads Facebook group. Um, and it's pretty—it's a pretty long question, so I'm going to just read parts of it. But she says she didn't like or understand Flannery O'Connor before she listened to our podcast. I'm not sure how to express what I think now, she says. I don't love her in the same way that I love Homer or Tolkien or Austin or Shakespeare or Tolstoy. I wouldn't grab her books first from a burning building. I wouldn't turn to her writing when I'm feeling sad, confused, or depressed. Which is David editorial. In, That's just
2: good life in, advice. Insert yeah.
0: David editorial, good idea. Um, but, but she goes on, Mary goes on, I appreciate her writing. It has helped, it is beautiful and well-crafted prose that accomplishes what she intends. And that she, you know, basically mentions that the show has helped us helped her see flannery o'connor's motives and that she thinks those motives are praiseworthy so she'll read more of her work so here is the the question that was all prefatory. she can think of other authors who have offended her authors who she might give the one-star review on amazon and so that (laughs) makes her wonder if there is something she missed with these other authors as well so how do we know what interpretive, quote, key to use on any given author. How do you know you are being fair to a challenging author? I'm guessing a BA in English wasn't enough for me to have all the tools that she wants as a reader. Um, So it's disorienting, Mary says, to realize you misjudge someone like like she misjudged O'Connor, and it shakes her readerly self-confidence. She mentions then that Allen Ginsberg was someone that she's wondering if she misjudged um, that she read him for a senior seminar class class and loathed him with every fiber of her being. She's not the only one, of course. Um, (laughs) so she goes on and she goes on on this and and kind of talks about how, you know, she remembers getting into a heated argument between herself and a classmate classmate where he defends Ginsburg and, um, so on and so forth. But the question is how, how do you know if you've misjudged a challenging or a difficult author or one, an author that you otherwise hate? Um, and I think this is a great question. I think this question for some people, though probably not too many people, it could still be applied even to C.S. Lewis. You know, there are a couple of Lewis books that I am – I actually um, – I'm going to come out right and say it. I really dislike Till We Have Faces. Um, so yeah. there's books like that where I think whether it's books or specific authors that um, it's we we it's easy to wonder whether you've misjudged them. And I think there's a lot that goes into this. But, Tim, what do you think? Are there any authors – I'll just ask this first. Are there any authors where you feel the same way, like where you wonder, did I just misjudge this author or is there really yeah. something going on here? Because there's really two options, right? Either the author is really not that good or we misjudge them. Um, I guess the third author is that the author could be good but not not, um, to my taste but I think that's a separate yeah. conversation altogether. Uh-huh. So, how yeah. would you how would you approach this question, Tim? And we'll just spend a few I minutes think, on it before we
1: talk about Lewis. I don't think that there is any pre-existing systematic rubric but that we can use as a filter to say um I I kind of prejudge these authors to be good and I can prejudge these authors to be bad. I I'm really suspicious of that. So I kind of, to segue us into C.S. Lewis in a little while, um, I'm of the C.S. Lewis camp from his book, An Experiment in Criticism. The author generates the rules by which we assess the author's work. Yeah. Not we come with pre-existing rules by which we critique the author and say, oh, this is good because it corresponds with a healthy um, worldview or does not correspond with a healthy worldview, I think that is something – gosh, I'm going to state I think that's something that um, – I think that's an immature approach to reading.
2: Right and on, man. Go, I, go, go. I
1: do. And it's – man, I, I'm like fighting with myself because I think that a lot of – conservative christians and i mean this is my world so i'm talking about my people that is one of the primary ways in which we train our young people and even train our adults to read literature you kind of filter it through this kind of pre-existing worldview grid right and kind of check boxes yes and you check boxes no and if you have more nos than yeses then it's a bad book because it doesn't correspond with our theology our um biblical convictions
0: yeah for better for better or worse modern christians have been trained to see the world to to actively look at the world through a specific lens as opposed to just letting the world be what it is so to speak right right which is for better or worse sometimes that's good and, and but it's not always
2: Right. And what Lewis says in Experiment of Criticism about what Tim is saying is when you go looking for that, you're going to find that, right? So you're, you're, Absolutely. you are you enter the book looking for a reflection of what you already think, and then that is exactly what the book is going to give you.
1: Yeah. It's no big surprise that you your pre-existent categories will be the post-existent categories after the book. And the book will probably not have affected you. It won't have changed you. It won't have threatened you. It won't have pleased you. It just it's not alive it just it's not alive yeah so i th- i think the question that was asked by a reader is a very it's a thoughtful question and i think to some degree there's no there's no safeguard that says yes this is g- here is the pre-existing kind of spreadsheet that you can use so that you can i don't know uh that you can assess. Now, having said that, I've there's a I've read a couple of books sometimes, and I have put them down, and I've ceased to read them, not because they didn't correspond with my worldview, but because I really felt that the author was lying to me. The author was –
2: Oh yeah, I'm sensitive According, to that too man. If I you know, don't think you're being honest i'm my head is screaming while I'm reading that book
1: absolutely absolutely and in in a way that kind of conforms to Lewis's view and experiment on criticism um if an author is failing to comply by the by the kind of life view that the author is articulating and the author violates that um in a way it sort of like demonstrates an incoherence in the author's kind of vision that he is casting. And to me, that's a, that's a fair way to assess a book is if it fails by its own lights, by the author's own lights, if it does not kind of like complete the contract that the author set up, I think that's a reasonable, um, time to judge the book and say, Nope, this is a weakness.
0: Well, yeah. Um, books are we. We ought to. We there. There will come a point when we ought to judge the quality and value of a work of literature. Uh-huh. But the I think part of the problem is where it's where where you begin that, and and too much too often we start we judge yes. it based on something on on the wrong set of standards, and you are alluding to that with the idea of like coming to, if you come to a work of literature with a specific worldview in mind or with your own specific self-interest in mind, I don't mean that like self-interest and like selfishness, but essentially if we come to the work more concerned with what we're going to get out of it or looking at it with only a a certain, through a a certain sort like a certain color of lenses, so to speak to mix up a whole bunch of bad metaphors there, then, um, (laughs) then you're, you're kind of, you're, you're damaging your ability to experience the work, on its own terms, so to speak. Uh And you can't, you can't learn to recognize what you're talking about there, Tim. You can't, you can't effectively and rightly and, uh, judiciously judge or assess the quality of a work. If your own ego is getting in the way, so to speak. And I don't mean that. I don't mean, again, I'm using these terms negatively, but I just did an interview for the next issue of our magazine, um, which is coming out. It's our, it's the first time we're doing a summer issue. It's our second issue of the year. And Angelina wrote, wrote a, wrote that article on mystery stories for it. But for the interview in the issue, I, I interviewed Alyssa Wilkinson, who's been on this, not on this particular podcast, oh, yeah. but on our network before. And she teaches uh, literature. She's a she's an, a culture critic for Vox.com, but she also teaches at the King's College in New York City. And one of the things she talked about is how, as a teacher, we need to prepare students to read without ego. Um, mm-hmm.
2: to, um, I love that.
0: She, so she says, if you're immediately trying to think about how To say something smart about a work Of art then you're just letting your ego Get in the way or if you're trying to think about how to Interpret it right away then you're letting your ego get in the way Or if you're thinking about your own taste Right away then you're letting your ego get in the way And you have to start by observing By taking it in by even observing your own Reactions to it um, So true Then uh, Then then you're doing it wrong Um, And so I'm trying to find this quote by her but I think that speaks to what
1: you're talking about there. Um, so she says – You guys, don't you, don't you feel like it's it's a dangerous proposition what we're putting forward? I mean surely you guys – I mean it's scary to say I'm going – I'm giving myself to this author. I am entrusting myself to this author because – I don't know about you guys. when I end, When I'm reading a new author – I'm putting myself in that author's hands, and I'm kind of saying, "Do with my imagination what you will." (laughs) And especially as a younger person, or as someone who has not been reading, doesn't have a whole lot of time to read, it's a scary proposition because you don't know what this author is going to do.
2: Right, but see, but but I think that's where uh, that's when you talk about authority and tradition and things like that, because I I don't think. I don't think a brand new author deserves that kind of benefit of the doubt. and and I don't have a problem at all if I pick up a brand new author and I'm three chapters in and I think, you know what? I'm just no, I'm not going to even bother finishing this. It doesn't It has not earned the right for me to to give myself to it, you know, something brand new and untested. but 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 if it came from a recommended yeah. friend who I trust, then I would be much more willing to. Like just just the fact that it's on the bestseller list is not going to be enough for me to trust it. But like if Tim were to say, hey, you should you should give this a try, then I would, even if I felt uncomfortable or whatever, I would yeah. I, I would definitely keep going. But it's an incredibly complicated question, and and um actually I gave a talk with a very similar title to what David is talking about. It's on the Cersei website. It's called The Humble Reader, and it's about how to humble yourself to approach literature, and it's kind of got my full thoughts on this. But. One of the things yeah. that – it's very complicated. This because we all agree that there is such a thing as bad art, right? The, uh, but the question is how do you know it's bad art and how do you know it's not just you? And one of the things that Lewis says in an experiment in criticism well, is your reaction to a book honestly tells more about you than it right. does about the book. Right. right. And this is true for Which everyone. Which is
0: why the Amazon stars don't tell you a lot about – like, Amazon reviews don't tell you a lot about the books themselves so much as exactly. the readers. About the reviewer. Or is he, the, or about that book's place within the culture at large.
2: Right. And he even goes on to say a good reader can find something good in a bad book. Right. Mm. Because they have that ability, right? So it, it's 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 terribly complicated. You know, one of the things he talks about in Experiment in Criticism that I've been thinking a lot about is he, he talks about how he personally has just struggled to really love Tristram Shandy by Stern. But oh, he had yeah. a friend who loved it. And so he would write letters to the friend and say things like, well, you know, the next time you come, hit me hit me with your best reasons about why I should love this book. And so he definitely has this drive of if there's a goodness here, I'm going to find it, which is what I really try to do as, as a reader. And I have horribly misjudged. I mean, we're talking about Lewis. And so this is a perfect story. One of the biggest misjudgments I ever made in my life with a, about a book was about Lewis. Twenty something years ago, I read That Hideous strength knew nothing about medieval literature or anything, and I hated it. Hated it to the point that for almost two decades, I referred to it as that hideous book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but then the more that I got into medieval literature, the more that I got into Lewis, when I revisited it, it is now my favorite Lewis book, and I feel like the biggest idiot. (laughs) Yeah, it's a hard book. It's a hard book, and it's very weird— in all the best ways that a book can be weird, because it's very—it's that medieval weird. But it, I mean, my initial reaction said everything about me and nothing about that book. Well, I did um, not understand that book, and I didn't know how to read it.
0: I think one thing that good readers do, though, is, and and Alyssa Wilkinson brings this up in the interview. Actually, that I, I'm excited for people to read this interview. It's it's good. Um, yeah, it sounds She she brings up that it's ac- a good reader actually learns to recognize what their own responses to a work of art mean yeah like you learn you learn that where your own prejudices lie or where your own where you're like the kind of things you're going to judge and and you learn to be careful about them Mm -hmm. so um and now i'm kind of expanding on what she said but like a good reader a good teacher also teaches the student to do that as well like like if you're like angelina learn like if she learns 20 years ago, if you'd approached that hideous strength and know, been able to recognize your own limitations, your own prejudices, your, the way you judge things, then you can you can kind of learn to stay, take a step back from those and try to like veil them in a way and then turn your focus away from those things that are driven by yourself and then try to ignore them and approach the work on its own. And then you might have been able to see the things that now you're seeing Better certainly. You had to have more experience. You had to learn about medieval literature and all that to make the subsequent reading better. The biggest
2: obstacle, honestly, was genre. You know, I I I approached it thinking it was 1984, and then I was like, "Hey, this is 1984." And then what the heck just happened to 1984?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, you know why is Merlin in the middle of Oceana? This doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, but now I understand genre, right so I, I, I get it now, but yes, this is exactly what you're talking about. it was my it was my absolute own limitations, and I didn't even know enough at that point to know what my limitations were
0: it's It's hard because I you know students almost always their first response to a work this is true of all of us, I suppose um, but mediocre readers in particular of which I am. Certainly include should be included in that list. Uh, tend to think about a work first based on whether it we like it.
2: Mm-hmm. Like
0: when you ask somebody, "Was that book good?" You almost always are going to get a response that has something to do with whether or not they liked it. Um, and that's especially true of of students. And we spend, I think, an inordinate amount of time focusing on whether we like art. Um, and like yes. it's like with movies in particular. Like when I hear some of my students talk about movies. Really what they're talking about is whether they liked it, which really has very yeah. little to do with the movie itself and more to do with the taste that has been in whatever sequence of events cultivated within that student. And that could have to do with any number of experiences. could be that they had a bad experience with a kind of movie when they were 10 years old, and that helped shape their taste, or the kind of movies that their dad or their mom or their grandparents liked. I mean, like these th- our taste is shaped by so many different things yeah, and really has nothing to say, as you guys have said, about whether or not a book is good. And so we've got to find a way to stop beginning our conversations with our own taste
1: you know you know what might be a fruitful exercise maybe even as part of a podcast is for each of us to name books that we hated like maybe it's that hideous book for um angelina uh books that we hated on first read but also either knew in the moment or soon thereafter that it actually was really a great book but we just hated it so for me Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. I hated it when I first read it. And I also knew this is a really, really profound work of art. I just can't stand it. <laughs> and now I actually, 20 years after having first read it and had that reaction, I should really admire and even like the book now.
0: Sometimes it just takes time.
1: <laughs> like, yeah. Um,
0: now that doesn't mean that, like Alan Ginsberg for for Mary, that Allen Ginsberg
1: is, you know, maybe her like own. a fine wine that will <laughs> mature with. Yeah, maybe not. But and, but and I maybe think
2: he is. Or maybe he's just one of these new guys that hasn't earned the benefit of the doubt for greatness.
1: But on the
0: on, and on the other hand, there's nothing wrong with trying to become the kind of reader. Who can find good things in bad work
2: mm-hmm. as yeah. you said like Abs- absolutely w-
0: i think we need to begin r- we need to be approach art at first even art that on the surface we disagree with with us with at least um some grace right mm-hmm. i don't know if that's the right word but at least the, giving the giving the creator the artist the benefit of the doubt and trying to Deep find charity mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. charity yeah with a sense absolutely. of charity yeah yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. and Luke- says that he's he, you know he doesn't ask did you like the book he's more much more concerned with why did you like the book you know and we and we we stop the conversation as if our taste is you know the end of the conversation i liked it or i didn't like it and he he wants to know why which is something i always try to do with my my children and my students because very often the answer to the question why will begin to unravel the whole thing and and um, I mean, I've had that happen to me where someone says they love a book that I hate and I just think, okay, well, you're not even human to me anymore. But then I ask them why they loved it. And, of course, they, they love the right things, right? And I think, oh, well, actually, we're very much on the same page and, you know, you're you're a discerning person and I can't presume that you, you loved it for all the reasons I hated it kind of thing, right?
0: Yeah, well, so this conversation, we could talk about this for episode <laughs> upon episode and really it probably should be an ongoing part of, you know... Mm. the life of close reads. (laughs) Um, But we do need to talk about Narnia Mary. I hope we at least... Helped, or at least broached the subject enough to. And
2: it's a, whet it's a your great appetite. segue because it's something Lewis had a lot to say about it, and, and I highly recommend that people pick up. It's a very small book, Lewis's Experiment in Criticism, yeah. where he just kind of rambles through how, how do you read a book, and it's not systematic, and there's no rubric like Tim says, and it's it's a it's a tricky situation, and it's a matter of wisdom and experience and and uh, great humility. You know, he says you have to surrender yourself to a book before you can give an opinion of
0: it. Yep. And I do think that uh, the idea, we have to abandon the idea that there is a rubric that's just going to tell us whether a book is good or not. Right. There are certain things we can look at but like you can't just check a bunch of boxes and be like, well, seven out of the ten, it's it's a great book, you know. Or I (laughs) should, because even then you might not, I mean, you might not like it and I don't know. Anyway, we can talk, we're going to continue to have to talk about this. Can I
1: say um, one more thing, David? I, I hope that the person who Submitted that question doesn't. I hope we have not twisted (laughs) her question to make it into one that we want to answer. Like, I I think the desire, the desire in that question is a good desire.
2: Absolutely.
1: Right, right, yes.
2: That shows a great humility to say, Was the problem me?
1: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely right. I think that I think the question is an excellent question. I hope that the reader, when she or he hears this, doesn't think, oh man, I just got scolded. No, the question no, is yeah. a great question. Yeah,
0: because um, we're all the same way. Like We are. How she feels about Ginsburg, I feel about many right. books that are considered right. great in the canon of
1: literature. Me and too. I mean,
2: and Tim and I joke, we don't share a love of Hemingway. You know, this is how I feel about a lot of modern authors like, ma, give me 500 years and then we'll see if he's still any good. You know? <laughs> <You're>
1: right. <laughs> <clears throat>
0: Well, uh, speaking of books that are not five hundred years old, um, we should talk about the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe." Um, but before I do, uh, Angelina Graham just texted me, and he wants me to tell you that he is currently working the jackhammer at his construction job, and he can still hear you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I just thought you should know that. I thought you know. I thought you should.
2: Okay, so I'll try to talk up. Okay, is that better, Graham?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's not great for me, but thanks. Uh, my 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 ears are a little a little bit you know tender now. Uh, let's talk about the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe." As I as I mentioned, it it did win the the vote. Um, it wasn't surprising, you know. There were two or three we kind of guessed would be in the running, um, and that was certainly one of them. Um, this is a book that for a lot of people has a high degree of nostalgia factor going into it, um, into why people love it. Um, Angelina, when was the first time that you ever read or had the line "The Witch of the Wardrobe" read to you?
2: Uh, as a grown adult in my thirties, okay. reading it to my children. Okay, so no, no kidding, no
0: nostalgia factor for you. So that's actually none. That's good. At all. That's good for the conversation. Tim, what about you?
1: Very young. Yeah, uh, li- probably, likewise. Uh, probably before age ten.
0: Yeah, I was probably the first time I was probably four. I mean, my dad read it, read them to us reg- fairly regularly. A couple, at least three or four times throughout my childhood.
1: Um, I'm so curious what Angelina's like. Yeah, what her?
0: You are the minority, I suspect, within our listening audience. So I would love let's, let's start with you. What were your first impressions? Like this is a book that you had heard forever. I'm guessing was a great book, or at least when you went into it, you probably knew that people thought of it as a classic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did it live up to your expectations, or or not?
2: So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna even show myself to be even more of the minority. <laughs> Uh, Because most people, Nornia is their first introduction to Lewis, right? And it's the thing he's most famous for. But the reality is that it's the last thing he wrote. And the publishers were incredibly concerned that it would damage his reputation, (laughs)
1: <laughs> they were um,
2: yes, because it was a children's book and it was a fairy tale, both of which were incredibly out of fashion at that time. People wrote realistic children's books in the fifties. This was published in nineteen fifty, uh, and and so he was a well-respected scholar. He's a you know he's an Oxford PhD. He's a scholar. He writes serious stuff, and now he's going to derail himself by writing a fairy tale, right? So that actually is the way that I approach Nornia because my introduction to Lewis was. First, before I ever read any fiction of his, I first read his literary essays. So my introduction to Lewis was as a medieval scholar and as the world's foremost scholar on Edmund Spencer, which um, huh. our readers may not know. Um, so Lewis is uh, – so Edmund Spencer wrote The Fairy Queen and Lewis was a medievalist. Let's be real.
0: He he's probably the only one.
2: <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that's what I said. I say he's still the world's foremost scholar on Yeah, him. no doubt. Um. So he he adored Spencer and, and devoted his life to studying the Fairy Queen. So I actually read those essays and the Fairy Queen before I ever read Nornia. So, so then I read Nornia and I'm just like, oh my goodness, it's the Fairy Queen. <laughs> <laughs> so my experience was that I loved it because it was so heavily literary and it was so deliberately spin Syrian and I was so tickled about that. And when I teach the fairy queen, we always talk a lot about Narnia because my students come to me and they are immersed in Narnia. They have grown up. They chapter and verse me when it comes to Lewis and Tolkien. They know those huh. books so much better than I do like, you know, and so they'll pick up every little thing. So the so for me, I read The Fairy Queen and then I loved Narnia. For my students, interestingly enough, and parents and listeners who are like, "How do I prepare my children to the great books?" might find this interesting. My students who are very, very, very well versed in Narnia find The Fairy Queen a piece of cake because they come in there and they're just like, "Oh, that's from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, that's where he got that Prince Caspian scene from." And you know, they're just and they're, it's all there. It's all plot points are there. Theme and tone is there. Motif, image. I mean, it's just. It's, it's a Spenserian wonderland. So I came to Nornia as an adult and uh, appreciating it that way, even while I was reading it to my kids as a fairy tale, and they very much enjoyed it. So mm. it, 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 you know, that to me is success. Lewis says that. What good is a children's book if only children can read it? Uh-huh. And It was something that for me absolutely worked on multiple levels, and I was just delighted with the very, very high literary quality.
1: Angelina, I had no idea that it was Spencerian. I've never read The Fairy Queen. I know
2: yes. nothing
1: about Spencer. Put
2: down that Hemingway and go get you some Spencer today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, can I just, as a side note, is how hard would it be to read The Fairy Queen? How hard would it be for me to read The Fairy Queen?
0: Uh, Given your I, level of intelligence?
1: <laughs> Pretty tough. <yeah.
0: laughs>
2: medium <laughs> that Lewis's essays on spencer first to at least know what to expect but i mean you know you can get a nice annotated copy it's, n- it's not it's not hard to understand the plot points of what's happening it's it, it would be a challenge i think to unravel it if you don't know anything about what spencer's well, doing in the world he's in. but it's a yeah. but it, it's, the fairy queen also operates on multiple levels so you can read it just as a you know a great quest story and then you can spend time thinking, wow, he's just you know, dipping into the whole depths of what it means to be a human being.
0: Yes. You could you could get the what is it, Fierce Wars and Faithful Loves or something like that, Angelina? Yeah, that's
2: Where, the annotated version. There's a lot of good annotated versions. That's
0: just there. of book one though, right?
2: That's just of book one, right.
0: Yeah, so you could just
1: do that and it's not real long. Okay.
2: He um, died halfway through, so there's only six books. There were twelve books planned. It was modeled on the Aeneid. Oh okay. So one of the things that Spencer does that you see in Nornia is that Spencer's not a medieval writer. He's actually a Renaissance writer who was deliberately writing a very, very out-of-style medieval book uh, and was mocked by his Renaissance friends for writing something medieval. But what he does is he blends classical elements with medieval elements, and you know you see that in Nornia. So this is why you have Bakish traipsing through some fairy forest, because he's, he's that's a Spencerian thing to blend those elements.
1: I love it.
0: So, okay, I have a I have a question about the line that Witch, in the wardrobe. Um, do you? Which order do you think that that book should be in the series? Because you know, it's been reorganized in you know in the the last twenty five or thirty years or whatever. So, so, when you buy a set, it's not the first book in the set anymore. Do you have a problem with that, or are you okay with it?
2: With it, so I didn't know, and I went and bought you know whatever the new version was. And so I read it in the quote unquote the new order, right? Starting with um the magician's nephew, yeah. And I regret that. I regret that. I wish that my children's first introduction to Nornia had been Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. I think there is something very important about. Having your first entrance into Narnia be Lucy's first entrance when she opens the wardrobe and sees that world—that needs to be our first interest. I do not think we're benefited by knowing the backstory. I, I think it detracts.
0: I agree with that wholeheartedly. Like the first time you walk into Narnia should be through the wardrobe.
1: Do you lose anything by backtracking to the magician's nephew?
0: I I think I think you do.
2: Yeah, I think you lose some of the wonder of it. Because you already know who Jadis is. You, you know too much. It, you know, it's like you read The Lord of the Rings, then you read The Cimmerillion. You don't – the backstory is awesome, but, at, you know, it's a, it's a matter of time. It's not the
1: time. entree. It's, it's not, not the entree. It's really
2: not. I think it takes away from some of the wonder of Narnia because you already – you're like, oh, okay, I know her. She's the alien from another planet, and it just – it's it's too much, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's also just—I uh, mean, I, I would argue it's a better book than the line of the Witch in the is. Wardrobe. Although, I mean, then the the magician's nephew. Then the nephew. nephew. Yeah. I know yeah. not everyone agrees with that. Like that's the magician's nephew is a lot of people's favorite, but you know what? Your taste doesn't matter. Um,
2: really, the magician's nephew is people's favorite. Yeah, a, <laughs> lot, a lot of people. Me. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, um, and the line of the Witch and the Wardrobe is not my favorite book in that series. As uh, as far as. And I actually don't think it's the best book in the series. But I
2: like the Voyage of the Dawn Treader.
0: I, voyage is, I think, Voyage is the best. Um, but, but you're right in the, that the line "The Witch and the Road, Wardrobe" has a sense of wonder kind of inherent within it that that makes it really meaningful. It's the
1: starter kit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, like, because you know, because. Lucy and Edmund and Peter and Susan have so much wonder themselves when they enter that world. It translates to the reader and and a big part of that wonder is the doubt. And I think the doubt is a huge part of it. Like none of the other books, mm. there's a big, you don't have a, this big question mark about whether the Narnia is real and all this kind of stuff. It's just assumed, right? But when But when you get into, when Lucy goes into Narnia and she has to convince them that it's a real place and they don't believe her you there's this you know on the one hand you could doubt whether she's telling the truth along with her siblings or you can feel along with her the despair that they don't believe her and as a reader you become a part of that
2: yes and i also think if you don't know diggory's backstory then you're able to enjoy that mysterious conversation he has well how do you know Lucy's lying? And they're like, "What an mm-hmm. adult thinks an imaginary world is right." If you already know the backstory, you lose something of the of the wonder, even of that conversation. This that's a mysterious conversation, and you're like, "What's the deal with this mysterious guy? And what does he know? And who is he?" And those are questions to be answered later, not before.
0: Right? Yeah you don't want you don't need to have everybody answer before you start. So Tim, uh, you read it when you were young. Yep. How many times have you read it over the years?
1: Not that many. Maybe three times. I borrowed one of my students' copies of it, and I'm halfway through rereading it. Oh, my goodness. I love that book so much. And I fully acknowledge it may be like a nostalgia-based reading. I don't think so, though. I just... It's
2: I'm here to so, tell you it's got adult literary merit. Go Tim, go.
1: <laughs> it's wonderful.
0: Why do I, you, I cut
1: you off, David?
0: Well, why do you think I mean the nostalgia thing is I don't have a problem with this at all because well, why do you but why do you think the nostalgia factor has been so prominent for so many people? Like what about it lends it to nostalgia?
1: I think it's so I think one of the things that's so wonderful about the book is it puts the children in charge and the children see something. um, It's not that they're placed in opposition with adults, but they, they are part of this world. That the adults in the book that we see only sparingly, you know, you see these like like bunch of adults that come through the manor that are getting a little tour or whatever. These adults have no access to the incredible world that the children have entered. And the children are treated, they're given these kind of adult level responsibilities and they – and that those adult level responsibilities are dependent upon a child – like wonder because they are children and they i just think that the, the kind of dynamic between the very adult responsibilities that they have in the book and the kind of just the wonder of entering the wood of meeting um the snow queen of hearing about aslan that juxtaposition of childlike wonder and adult responsibilities is just, it captures us. It captured me. And I felt like I was again reading it. I loved it. I loved it.
0: One of the things that I think is really great about those books, uh, generally all of them, is the idea that it allows the children to be heroes, but it also questions like, what does that mean? Because in certain cases, like the characters make bad choices, right? Like Edmund yeah, makes bad choices, Edmund. but he ends up getting to redeem himself through his heroism. Um, and like the question of what it means to be a hero and what does it take to be a hero and all those kind of things are so prominent in the book without being like overt about asking them, right? Like Aslan doesn't say to Edmund, what are you going to do to be heroic? Uh huh. You know, they just, they, they work, these things just like work themselves out. They're just part of the story because the characters get the the opportunity to be heroes and it doesn't, yeah. it's not overblown. It doesn't like beat you over the head. But it's the kind of stuff, it's sort of what happens in a child's imagination, right? Like, children are going around asking them, having characters in their heads, asking them, you know, what is heroism? But they're doing, they're acting out in their heads all the time opportunities to be heroic.
2: You know what's so great? that, That the stories allow the kids to be heroes without setting up the adults as idiots.
0: Yeah. That's a big, that's a good point, yeah.
2: Everyone has dignity. And so Diggory, you know, Professor Kirk... Is is he's not a villain? He's not someone who's anti-action. He's not an antagonist. He's not an idiot. He's not an obstacle to overcome. He's not someone to deceive. He's a helper, but in a very sort of standoffish way, allowing them to do what they need to do. Yeah, he's what he's like a mentor or a guide. They can go to him and get like good advice.
0: Yeah, and he doesn't slap Peter and Susan and Lucy uh, Edmund upside the head and tell them, "Go in there, it's real." He lets like he gives them a a piece of sort of cryptic advice. And then, yes. they ha- and then they have to t- make decisions and act on their own and all that kind of stuff. You're right. They, they, he, he's there, but he's not dictating their, what they do.
2: Right. He's, he's not a protagonist teacher. or an antagonist. He's not, he's not forcing the action one way or another.
1: One other thing I just have to say is yeah. <laughs> a side comment. Um, you know, Aslan is the clear hero of the book. The, it's like we're with the four children Um, and in some ways they're the heroes of the book or they're the protagonists and they certainly act heroically, but all of the book is built around the anticipation, the arrival and the mighty deeds of Aslan. And (laughs) I remember I went to go see, uh, the line, the witch in the wardrobe when the the movie came out, whatever that was 10 years ago. Yeah. And somebody asked me what I thought of it and I felt so guilty because I didn't really enjoy it. And the thing I think that I, dislike the the reason the movie didn't work is because I just didn't like Aslan in the movie. Oh, I know. Leah
2: Come on, that's not Aslan's voice.
1: Oh, and just like the whole CGI of a lion, there was just it just failed. And I felt guilty cuz he's the Christ character in the movie. And it was so nice to get reacquainted with like the Aslan of the book cuz the Aslan of the book is absolutely golden.
2: You know, you know absolutely. what it probably was, though. It was probably an inability to capture awe, right? He's he's good, but not tame, and and I think that's an incredibly difficult concept just in general to grasp. And and how would you even show that on screen? Like he didn't have enough. Awe that's such
1: to a make. great point, Angelina. It's such a great point. It's It's almost like if you were, if I were to make that movie, having seen how it fell short, I think what I would have done. Is I would have um, hidden Aslan a little bit more, if that makes sense. Because there's no, always... I
2: think you almost have to. I, right? I agree with you. Yeah, you almost have to.
0: Well, Aslan's an interesting character because in in some ways he's kind of a he's kind of flat as a character. Like there's some he's archetypal and all, obviously yeah, and all he's, of that. All,
2: he's like a force, right? He's a force,
0: right? Yeah. Um, but he's not like a he and the White Witch both. They're kind of like archetypes that are a little thinly drawn um Hmm. like they're not great in-depth characters as far as that goes but yeah he's clearly the hero or at least a hero like the the most prominent but in some ways you could say they're not like the most in-depth but these are thin these are slim volumes they're not that but
2: these are not these are not flaws this is this is very medieval in what what lewis is i mean this was one of the objections tolkien had to nornia right but that but 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 Roger Lancelyn Green—I mean, Lewis was ready to scrap Narnia because Tolkien didn't like it. But Roger Lancelyn Green liked it and Charles Williams liked it. Both of those guys, hugely medieval guys, they saw what Lewis was doing and they encouraged him. Um, but obviously Narnia and, and Middle-earth, they're vastly, vastly different. But— right. L- it's not a flaw that that everything's so sort of flat. It's very Spenserian what's happening, and and Aslan is supposed to be a type, and Aslan is like King Arthur and the Fairy Queen, so just like so just like um, the the books of the seven books of Nornia is not one unified story like The Lord of the Rings. It's a lot of different stories which are sort of held together by the fictive world of Nornia and the character of Aslan and the overall good versus evil battle. That's the exact same narrative um, structure and frame that Spencer's doing. Uh, twelve books, twelve different episodes, one magical land. King Arthur hmm. is the thread that comes through each one in and out a little bit. He's the Christ figure. Uh, he's you know he's not super complicated. <laughs> he comes in and does what has to happen. Um, but you know structurally, Lewis is doing that same thing. So I mean, I, it is to, Tolkien's right. Narnia is not. Middle-earth, but it can't be. It's not what he was trying to accomplish. I mean, a fairy tale always has stock characters to a certain extent. It, it messes up the archetype if you want to get, you know, let's get into Jadis' head and figure out, you know, was she mistreated as a child? Why is she <laughs> evil? You know, you can't, you, that won't work in a fairy tale. Things have to be very clear in a fairy tale.
0: One, well, and, and the archetypes that were easy to recognize, which show up throughout the series, obviously um and in fact are sometimes repeated <laughs> like the icy witch type thing is repeated in the silver chair and of course jadis comes back and the magician's nephew as you mentioned earlier but those archetypes um that we can easily recognize allow a framework within which the various children characters throughout the series and in the obviously the pevenseys in the case of the Lion, the witch and the wardrobe that gives them a framework in which those kind of those young characters can like operate
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and right. and like Fulfill their roles and and um, and act. I guess. As, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't want to overstate that too much, but.
1: Um. Hey, David. David, what do you think of the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe"?
0: Well, I mean, I, I like it a lot. It's, it's not my favorite. I like *The Voyage of the untreader better personally. I think it might be a little better book. But the, one thing I think about the nostalgia factor is I think the Christmas part plays into that as well. Like the idea of like it being Christmas time and the snow and then aslan brings back some meaning to the to the to the cold and like frees them from yes. the, the witch and all that. i think that that christmas factor probably plays into the nostalgia the nostalgia factor that everyone kind of you know that we remember the books fondly and i do yes. think that's actually one thing that the movie did manage to get to get across <laughs> but i liked the um I liked the what Angelina said. I can't remember which word you used, but you mentioned that a lot of these characters have. Did you say nobility or um, distinction, or what was the word you used for? Like,
2: I think I said dignity.
0: Dignity, yeah. There's there's uh, so much dignity throughout all of these different characters. Like Edmund mm-hmm. has dignity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Edmund learns to have dignity, but um, uh, the 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 Fawn, uh, uh, Tumnus. Mr.
2: Tumness. Mr. Yeah. Tumnus
0: has dignity. Yeah. The, the Beavers have dignity. The Beavers. The little squirrels who stand up to the witch and then get turned into stone for a while—they have dignity. Um, the giants—that's not in their,
2: easy to accomplish. That's re, good writing.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, the giants in their own way have dignity, uh, um, and it's not the kind of dignity where it's like uh, like we're just told they have dignity. Like he never has to say that anyone's dignified, but he can show that, and, and he and in and showing it, it's a lot easier to root for those characters.
2: So many acts of small courage, you know, but that are, from a child's perspective, just the exactly kind of huge, courageous moments that children have, right? It's it's, it's not very often a child's going to be in a life or death situation, but there's so many... I just there's so many like moments in Narnia like was Mr. T- Mr. Tumnus makes that decision I'm not going to I'm I'm not going to turn you into jadis. Like that's mm-hmm. a moment of courage. That's, that's something a child I think can deeply relate to, right? Or are the or the beavers making their decisions and you know this is our last stand here. Uh, it's just uh, yeah, there's a lot of nobility and dignity there. I, I wish I had read it as a child. Uh, I
0: did not but I, I, the nobility the courage the little acts of courage thing is a great point too because like whether it's the squirrels or the or the um, the badgers or whoever it is the, all the different animals um, this small acts of courage seem like they build up as examples for yeah. the children. Like when they see the squirrels <laughs> or they see the badgers, you could, it seems like they're Lucy or whoever's had the Lewis's in at any particular point. Like he sees them. And that seems for Edmund, that seems to be a turning point type thing, because on the one hand he sees Tumnus or the, or the badgers and how they act. And then on the other hand, he sees the wolves or the, the evil dwarves or whatever, and how they act. And there are examples that, uh, that kind of not just show the children how to be courageous but in their own courage give the give the Pevensey children you know, the courage to act themselves. Yeah. It's more than imitation, it's like it's filling them up with courage in a way.
1: Yeah.
2: Yes, yes. And you know, the other thing that I love too about lion Loch in the wardrobe is that it's very easy for children's books to be preachy about right and wrong, right? And so this yeah. kind of scolding, you you broke the rules and we don't broke the rules. You know, no, 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 we don't break the rules. Uh, and, and what Lewis does with the character of Edmund is show the someone's kind of slow slide into evil and the way that yeah. it entraps you and you hate it and you're miserable and you don't know how to get out.
1: I, upon rereading Angelina, that was the thing that probably stuck out to me more than maybe anything else was – Turkish Delight created as a metaphor for sin or analogy for sin, it created this sort of just insatiable desire. And there was nothing in itself, like it wasn't, it wasn't killing him. The Turkish Delight was not killing him in itself. It was almost just like the kind of like redirection of his desire was what ended up being so harmful for him. Right. Right. And I thought that was tremendously insightful.
2: And the fact that he's instantly miserable, but he can't yes. get out of it.
1: Yes, he can't. He's constantly preoccupied with it.
2: And you know, that is how that is how kids think if i I was just talking to my my high school students the other day just kind of laughing about this but i remember and i bet you guys do too don't you have these childhood moments where you thought you had screwed up so bad your parents were going to kill you like Uh i'm about to go home and get on the gallows because everything Uh in our mind is huge we're trapped we we can't get out right and then you know i'd finally confess whatever it was to my parents and they would have this you know shockingly non-reaction like (gasps) oh well okay Study for that spelling test a little harder next time, Angelina. I'm like, that's it? I got a reprieve, no one had to yeah, die. Yeah. You know,
1: but,
0: You're but, burying but that, the lead here. Your parents used gallows.
2: <laughs> My par-
0: Mine used the guillotine.
2: <laughs> we were French, we totally should have gone, for that. <laughs> we were pre French Revolution Frenchmen.
0: So. Oh, okay. Okay. You were in more you were like you had you had dignity.
2: Yes, we had didn't we? You know, we had funeral marches, and you went to the gallows. But I mean, I always I can remember that walk home from school, and just feeling like I am marching to my death. So the, I, I just feel like Lewis captures that sense of dread and that I'm trapped in these huge circumstances, and I can't get out. I mean, this is something that kids really feel. These are, I and mean, this is what fairy tales do, right? They take the real fears that kids have and they show you how they can be overcome, and through mm. grace and forgiveness and love. I mean, Aslan forgives Edmund, but the siblings forgive Edmund. <sighs> Lucy forgives Edmund.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know,
2: there's restoration. It's not just that. Well, Aslan checked the box, and now Edmund hasn't to die. He doesn't have to die. You know, he he is restored. And then, like you said, Dave, I love that you said that he sort of earns it too, though. He has his act of heroic uh, courage at the end, and and kind of earns his place back into it. Not that we earn our forgiveness, but you you know how there's always that sense when when a relationship has been you know disrupted in some way, when there's some kind of breach, when you you have this, you know. You're glad. You, you believe you're forgiven, and you're glad you're forgiven. But you also like want to prove to your friend, "I'm still your loyal friend. I'm gonna, you know." Right. I'm yeah. gonna restore this somehow. I'm gonna build this relationship back, and and Lewis captures all of those elements.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys ever yeah. seen? Did you guys watch *Little House in the Prairie* at all when you were younger?
1: Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah.
2: Okay. Yes. So
0: there was this episode that speaks to what you're talking about, there, Angelina, where Laura is. I can't remember what she thinks is going to happen to her or what she did wrong or whatever, but she's so consumed with guilt that she sees herself on trial and in her, it's like in her dreams every (laughs) night she'll have these dreams. And like the judge is this like archetypal judge with like the hilarious wig and he's sitting up like 40 feet up above like at this giant desk and the the jury looks terrible and actually there probably wasn't a jury but you know it's all dark in the room and like there's a there's an actual hangman in the gallows and she's she's having these dreams where she, she's so consumed with guilt and then it turns out not to be really much of anything <laughs> 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 um,
2: exactly exactly you know speaking of dreams I just got to say this because I read this today so Lewis did an earlier version of of this story um and I think the late 30s, early 40s, which he said was a miserable failure and he destroyed it. But then he decided to give it a try again, but he was still having so, he had the idea of the four kids and World War II and being evacuated and going through a wardrobe. He had that figured out, but he couldn't get the story to work until he went to sleep and dreamed Aslan (laughs) and woke up and said, that's it, that these stories are really about Aslan, not about the kids. I just thought that was cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: what should we? Any other, anything else you want to talk about related to this book?
1: It's just wonderful. I think it stood the test of time because it has its it's it's great book.
2: I was shocked. I did a little reading today, but uh, you know, I, I was shocked to find out that it is so highly read in public schools.
1: Really? I, I that guess is I really remarkable.
2: That, yeah. I mean, I guess I think of it as being a quote-unquote Christian book, which, of course, it wasn't published that way, and Lewis never thought of himself as a Christian author. But obviously, if it's being taught in public school, it doesn't have some kind of heavy Christian stigma like I guess I think it does.
0: Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> I've never thought about that. I guess I knew yeah, that kids I mean, would read it.
2: Well, it's, I don't know. that. I was reading the statistics today for how many schools teach it. It's like one of the most all-time popular books to teach in school. No kidding. I mean, how does that book not end up on a banned book list? But, you know, Fahrenheit know. 251's got to go. Like, I don't understand the world we live in at all.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you should have been living 700 years ago anyway, so. So
2: <laughs> no, this is well-established, yes. <laughs> Except I want my air conditioning and my refrigerator. And, you'd and prob- probably- <laughs> you you, <laughs> you
0: would have died of a plague like 25 years ago, so. Um or like an ox would have run over you or something.
2: Oh no, I always thought I'd have been burned as a witch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you float, huh? She
2: floats. <laughs> I can swim, so you know.
0: <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you got that that joke there. Uh that reference. Uh well, we should we should get off. We've been going for for a while. Um this has been fun. Next week we'll start on, on Brideshead Revisited. Uh, I'm
2: just excited that our, our listeners are so excited about Riot's Head.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's, there's uh, positive energy out there.
1: David, have we resolved how many chapters? What have we resolved for the first reading? Through chapter three. Through chapter three.
2: Prologue through three. I started today on the prologue.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so, yeah, let's uh, let's plan on that. And uh, any final thoughts? Do either of you want to drop in before we before we take off?
1: None from me.
2: Oh, I just hope that Narnia encourages people to tackle Spencer because I love Spencer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and if Narnia and Angelina's energy to, for it are not positive enough, then <laughs> there's probably no hope for Spencer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for joining us again. Uh, thanks to Roman Rhodes for sponsoring. If you have not yet subscribed, please do so on iTunes, Stretcher, wherever you get podcasts. Leave reviews if you if you don't mind. And uh, we will we will talk to you next week as we start. Uh, Evelyn Wall's *Brideshead Revisited*. Remember to to read that. Um, if you have any questions you want us to address on the show, you certainly be, feel free to leave those on the Facebook group page, and we will try to get to them as we can. But uh, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for everyone else here at the Cercy Institute, I'm David Curran saying farewell on Close Reads on the Cercy Institute Podcast Network. Talk to you next week.